on. You know, worship is worth worshiping because God is worth worshiping. So I just appreciate you and us and certainly the staff and the worship team. Our focus isn't a performance. And so we are so interested in worshiping at Grace Life. We're not distracted by a few seconds to tune things in. So that's awesome. So we're going to go ahead and read scripture like we normally do. I have a passage uh, listed up here. So if you want to grab your phone, your Bible and we're going to read Joshua 24, 31, just one verse, and then Judges 2, 7 through 11. So after you get it dialed in, we'll do that. Okay. We'll yep. Get, we'll get a couple minutes or another couple seconds. couple find seconds. A couple seconds. Find those on your devices or in your Bible. How you doing, buddy? As John mentioned, we're going to reading from Joshua first, one verse there, and then moving to the next book, Judges. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Now moving over to Judges 2 and reading verses 7 through 10. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. Thanks, Bill. Good work. Reading in public is something he's not afraid of. That's awesome. So when we talk about fear, I was just minutes ago in the back, conversation came up with Larry and Roger. They were talking about mountain climbing, rock climbing, and I was sharing with them a story that kind of fits today, so I'll share it with you. Years ago, Don and I were climbing Long's Peak. Long's Peak is one of the 54, whatever, 14ers in Colorado, and um, we were doing a kind of a technical route up, uh, if you ever seen Long's Peak, the face of it is like a thousand feet of just a sheer cliff. We, we went up Lampslide Glacier, cut across a, um, a ledge, which is, you know, anywhere from this wide to this wide, and then up a steep uh, snow ice gully and we had crampons ice axes and ice screws because you have to cl climb over ice and stuff and anyway so that was you know uh, intimidating and fun but um, fear I, there, there's some aspects of fear that when I'm hanging on on a cliff by my fingertips it's exhilarating I, I love that you know what I mean um, there's other things that are fearful that, that just freeze me up uh, I won't mention those because they're embarrassing but anyway so I've already shared with you, one of them has to do with, with delving into the depths of my wife's purse. Anyway, so um, we get to the top of Long's Peak, and it took us longer than it should have. And in Colorado, you want to get on the peak and off by noon because lightning is a very frequent thing there. So we were like 3 p.m., super late on top, and storms are coming in. And we're rappelling down a standard route. And so every, like, 100 feet, they have a big eye bolt drilled into the rock. So you rappel down to that. And you clip in and you thread your rope through it and rappel down to the next one. That's just how you get down. It's faster than walking and fun. And so um, 
we were kind of in a hurry, and so I rappelled down a couple bolts, but the last bolt, I skipped it. I go past it because the rope kept going, and I saw the snowfield down there. I thought, well, maybe the rope, it looks like it goes all the way to the snowfield. So I pass this bolt, the, the bolt, and I get down to the end of my rope, and there's, I'm on a cliff. There's nothing to hook into. There's no bolt, and I'm way too far from the snowfield. And I thought, I wonder if I could just jump. And then I used to be reading these books called Accidents in North American Mountaineering, and a story came into my head about some other guy that jumped, same thing, and slid to his death, and I thought, I'm not going to jump. So the only, and meanwhile, she's on top screaming. I don't know about what because I'm on the rock, but it turned out that the, the electricity was static electricity from lightning was building so much that the ice axe in her backpack was starting to vibrate and hum. So she's like, hurry up. And I'm like, so I pull the rope out of my descending device, and I literally just hang on to the cliff, fingers and toes, no security, not tied into anything, just hanging there. And then she comes down, and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, just give me the rope. <laughs> anyway, it all worked out. But there are some things in life that, that fear exhilarates us, and there are some things in life that fear just freezes us up, right? And we can grow in our fear, we can grow in managing our fear to where there's something that maybe super intimidates you to the point where you, you, you learn, you learn to trust either God or gear or whatever it is, and, and you can gain some confidence in that and grow. So anyway, we are, we are asking the question today, are you on a journey from fear to faith with your walk with God, with what he's putting in your life? There's always something that's fearful that he allows in our path, and it's designed to increase our trust in him, not to freak out and get completely frozen. So that's where we're at, and um, I've shared before, this is Grace Life Bible Church, and uh, why are we here? We are here because we have no lists. We are here because we have no masks. Now, those are very intimidating concepts. We, we have... I'm not going to give you a list. You ought, you should, you better. I was returning a, a tool to Harbor Freight with my son, a, a bearing seal driver kit. Anyway, it came with, with not the right parts. So I, and I, it'd been like a year. And, I, and finally we noticed that there's, there's not the right parts in it. So I take it back to Harbor Freight and the lady's like, okay, no problem. You know, and uh, did you buy it in the past like 90 days? I'm like, no, it's been a year. She looks at me and calls the manager and she's like, it's been a year, you know, and and so then they, she comes back and she says, okay, we're going to return it, but first you get this. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? You should know better. So she's, she's like shaming me. She just kept, you get this first. I'm like, okay, whatever. Anyway, so if, if we have a list by other people, it comes with shame. You, you should have, you didn't do the list. But if we have a list that the Spirit of God motivates us and, and, and it's for us from God, that list comes with encouragement and empowerment. And when we fail, we don't get this. We get forgiveness. And we see that so powerfully in the book of Judges, especially, especially with Gideon. It's amazing. And so I'm excited to, to see where we're going with this. But yeah, we, we, we are able to have no list of performance and trying to be something we're not before the people. And we don't have to have a mask. We can be authentic and go, I I, I failed at this. I'm not very good at this. And the Lord has been faithful to me at this. And I'm resting in his goodness. And so I'm comfortable with um, everything that's going on there. So we have been marching through the old covenant, the new covenant. And so uh, we've, 
we've done creation, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua. Now we're in the book of Judges, and the, the central judge in the book of Judges is Gideon. You might think it's Samson. It's not, but it's Gideon. We're going to focus on him today, and then uh, the rest goes on down there. Just a quick review of this. I had a um, I, I just need to keep going back to this. When we're thinking about reading the Bible, you know, we, we, we have to understand who it was written to and why it was written to them. So we look at their society, literary, historical, all the stuff that's their world, them and them. And then we, we reflect. Now, what does that have to do with any covenants or Christ? And we just, a lot of thinking there. And then we come down and say, okay, this is what it means to me today. So just... That's a picture I've walked through before. I'm not going to take the time to do it again. Otherwise, we'd be here too long. But Canaan. Canaan is small but significant. Little tiny place. Can you see it? Jeff. Matt, I mean, Matt. Can you point to Canaan? Where is it? Just point to it, buddy. Point. Point. With your hand. Point. There you go. He knows right where it is. That's good. So it's right there where Matt pointed. That's good. Anyway, it's small but significant. And uh, Genesis, we started up here in Ur. Uh, we, we built a case for that a long time ago. It's not down in Mesopotamia, down in uh, southern Ur. And um, we saw Abraham. Abraham had fear, right? He had a journey from fear to faith, but he let his fear dictate his actions. He goes down to Egypt. And he lies about his wife, and he slowly learns that fear is part of the package, walking with God, and that God is honored with faith in the midst of fear. Walking with God doesn't mean you don't have fear. It means you trust him in the middle of the fear. And then we went to Exodus and saw Moses. He also had fear, kind of fear of his past. And, and God met Abraham's fear with his promise. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. And God met Moses' fear with his presence. All the excuses Moses could give. And God is like, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Finally, Moses is like, no. So God is like, Okay, we'll get Aaron then, and we'll just, keep, we'll just keep giving you whatever you think you need to keep moving forward, and that is amazing kindness in the midst of fear. That's another thing I'm learning, that when we're afraid, God meets that with kindness. Really good. Then Numbers, they wander for 40 years because they looked at God's good gift to them for 40 days, concluded, can't do it. He's lying. And um, remember, they... If they don't learn to trust God on the way to Canaan, they will die in Canaan because of their lack of faith. Because they face an enemy, they can't possibly engage on a human physical level, right? They have to trust God if they're going to succeed in Canaan. Because the guys in Canaan have established cities, kings, armies, and Israel has none of that. And then we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy just happens right in one spot. There's no movement there, but that's the second law because all the males 20 years old and older died because they're responsible for guiding the nation and their families in faith, and they failed. Interesting that the men are punished, the women are not punished. So there's, there's a leadership thing there. When Sarah laughs, God goes to Abraham. Not Sarah. Anyway, so we go on there, and that's kind of where it um, gets us up to speed a little bit. We get to Joshua then. This is the promised land. They, they go in into the south. They have a conquest in the south. These red things are like various battles. And then they go into the north and they have conquest. And so the first 12 chapters, remember the first 12 chapters? How important this is? This is chapter 6, 7, 8, 10. Chapter 6, we had victory. Chapter 7, we have defeat because of disobedience. Chapter 
8, we have victory because of obedience. Chapter 9, we had a moral defeat because of disobedience. Chapter 10, obedience, victory over the Amorite kings. So you have this roller coaster thing that he has hand-selected certain battles from their history, not all of them, certain battles, and organized them so they can see when you obey, you win. When you disobey, you lose. And here's your own history of that story. Win, lose, win. Okay, so that is that is. A selective history going back to Deuteronomy 28, and that's what he's doing there. Then we have Joshua. The whole, the rest of the book is just dividing the land, and I put the oops thing here because Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh shouldn't be over there, but Moses just got tired of them whining and yelling, and so he's like, do what you want, and that becomes a huge problem later on. Um, Assyria comes and wipes them out. Anyway, um, so the heart of Joshua was this verse, and it's also the heart of Judges. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So it all comes down to meditating on it day and night. Now, you, you can't meditate on it or you can't do it if you don't know it. And you can't know it unless you read it and meditate it. And in our culture, you can't read it with so many beeping devices going off all the time. We live in an attention economy, and there's always things beeping, alarming, and interruptions. And how many times do you pick up a device to do one thing, and then 30 minutes later, you're still on the device, but you haven't done the one thing you picked it up, and you don't even know why you picked it up in the first place? Maybe that's just me. No. Okay. That is, that is it's, 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 our culture is a funny culture that way. We really have to be intentional about what we're doing and, and how we want to live with the minutes and the time we have when it comes to reading God's word. So just an encouragement there that um, we will all benefit from that. So we get to the book of Joshua. He ends the book. And, and remember that, that covenant treaty, like one powerful uh, king ruler would make with a lesser powerful. And, and that historical review, like the king says, I did all these things for you, so I expect you to give me 20% of your vegetables or whatever it is, okay? In this case, God says, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you across the sea. I brought you through the wilderness. I delivered you from the Amorites, delivered you from Moab, conquered Jericho through me, conquered the Amorites, Perizzi, all these people. Therefore, obey the Lord and worship him. I love the concept that worship includes obedience. It's something we don't think about because, because we, we would kind of like the freedom to just get the warm fuzzies and worship and then sort of just do my own thing. Whoever we're really worshiping God, it's going to filter into to our obedience. Anyway, um, worship him with integrity and loyalty. Put aside the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates. That's Mesopotamia, uh, way over here. And uh, in Egypt and worship the Lord. So this is Joshua 24. And at this point, they need a reminder that you put away your idols. Interesting. Which leads us to the title today, The Journey from Fear to Faith. This is Gideon's story, and I'm excited about, about what we're going to see here. Um, this is Judges 8. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. So they forgot. The point here is they forgot. Forgetting is the formula for failure. If you forget who God is, that is the first step to being confused, morally confused, and um, having all kinds of pain in life. They forgot to remember 
who God was. So, Bill read the passage. That's what we're thinking about. Here's another uh, short passage I'm going to read from Joshua 23. Joshua 23, 6, if you want to join me there. Joshua 23, verse 6. Toward the end of the book, he's, he's kind of transitioning from, from his life to the next story, which is Judges, and that's where we're going to go today. But Joshua 23.6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from, turning aside from it, neither to the right or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the name of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. The term cling is kind of a marital term of intimacy, so it doesn't mean just some half-hearted, I'll go see him now and then. It's, it's uh, okay. Verse 9, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. One man of you puts flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Now, verse 12, he, he's got judges. I mean, he's, this verse 12 starts to describe their experience in the book of Judges. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that, that you associate them and they with you, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you. I love these next descriptors. A whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. I've never forgotten the thorns in your eyes part. <laughs> that's like, that works. <laughs> that's, that's bad on the good-bad scale. Got it. Until you perish from this ground that the Lord God has given you. So that, that describes they forgot to remember him. They don't know who he is. They wander into this territory, into the enemy's realm, where they can't possibly be victorious without God. And they try to be victorious without God, and they just find failure, compromise, and frustration. Okay, so we're going to get to the book of Judges, three pro, pro tips before we do that. First, the judges in the Bible are not these kind of judges. They don't have the robe, the gavel. They're not like, like legal kind of judges. When we think of judges, we think of like, you know, court and judges, okay? I won't tell you the story about the time in junior high or high school, high school when I was in a courtroom with my softball team facing a judge for just some fun things that, anyway, it worked out. So, um... The judges, here's another pro tip, judges overlap. So if, if you're kind of a math person, you might read the book of Judges and, and it says, you know, 40 years of this and eight years of this and 24 years, you add them all up. You, that's not how it works because they, they, they exist and rule concurrently at the same time. So just keep that in the back of your mind. And then the third thing is the Spirit of God comes on these, at least for the judges. It, it comes on Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. But but it, it, parents, if you have a 14-year-old daughter, you do not want her to date these people, even though the Spirit of God is on them. I mean, this is, this is kind of awkward. I mean, if she dates Barack or Barak, I mean, he's just like, she'll have to make all the decisions. She'll have to pay for all the dates because that's Barak is like, oh, Deborah, whatever you want, you know. Gideon, he doesn't, he's just, he's just marked by fear, certainly not Jephthah. He killed his daughter to be a hero, literally. Samson is controlled by his power. So I'm just saying that, that how can it be that these judges are spirit-empowered and just a nightmare, a moral nightmare? What is with that? 
Wouldn't you think that if the Spirit of God indwells somebody, that they would like automatically just be right down the middle? You're like, well, wait a minute. I've got the Spirit of God in me, and I'm not always right down the middle, right? So what's the deal? Here's a quote I found in a book. It's good. The Spirit may be an effective power, but it seems that it is not automatically effective, at least not in terms of affecting deliverance. The Spirit comes upon or possesses a human being. Therefore, it must be embodied with cooperation and faithfulness if deliverance is to be effective. So we have the Spirit of God. New Testament's crystal clear. If you believe in Jesus, you have the Spirit. He doesn't come and go in the New Testament like he did in the Old Testament. Romans says if you have the Spirit of Christ, he's, you have the Spirit. If you have Jesus, you have the Spirit of Christ. So, but we have to meet the Spirit with some degree of cooperation and faithfulness, right? If you don't, it's called quenching and grieving. He's still there, but he's, we have just shut him up, um, or so we think. Um, so that's the, the pro tip number three is to understand that, that even though the Old Testament, these, the Spirit would come on these judges, uh, that didn't automatically mean they would be moral people. They still were products of their culture, all right? So, and then here's judges in two sentences. Basically, we disobeyed you, we broke the covenant, and we're in distress. We're not sorry, but we want some help. And then toward the end of the book, here's their conclusion. If we're to live much longer as a nation, we should follow God's covenant stipulations and get a king to help us. We just can't figure this out. That's basically the book of Judges. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. What do you mean we're, we're not sorry? Because it says they cried out multiple times. Yeah, the word cried out means just to shriek out. There's no repentance. In fact, repentance does occur in the book, but it's in the context of... Here's, here's when repentance does occur in the book of Judges, 2.19. Talked about the cycle. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll get to it. Whenever the judge died, they repented. They turned back, which means they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So whenever when repent, the word for repentance does show up, it, all it says is they turned back to their sin which is ironic. So it's interesting in Judges that there's no real heartfelt remorse on we're going to change our ways. It's just like, yeah, we're in pain and, and we're not sorry, but we want to be comfortable. Can you help us with that? And God in his goodness does. I, wh what would you do? I'm like, forget it. Okay, God is good and, and we're all glad that we're not God, right? Okay, at least most of us, some people. Okay, um, so Judges is to answer the question, how can we keep losing and we seem to struggle with all this stuff? The, the, the answer is obviously, well, you, you've forgotten me. You're faithless and you're disobedient and rebellious. We need to address those things. Walk with me, faithful obedience. And um, since you can't really do that, I'm, I'm down the road. I'm going to appoint a human king and, and he will follow me and you follow him. And as he follows me, then that's a start, okay? So let me geek out a little bit about structure of judges. It's, it's an A-plus literary thing. I mean, if you're an English teacher, Janelle, you would be like A-plus for this because it's just an amazing thing. I used to teach English. I don't know. Anyway, so um, whoever. So the first two chapters of the book are kind of broad introduction, political introduction, spiritual introduction. All right? So chapter one, check this out. I'm just going to zip through this. The whole chapter summarizes their failure. Listen to the tribes, and the question is, could they deliver 
them uh, dispossess the Canaanites. Judah and Simeon could not drive out the Philistines. Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, but to let them live in Gezer. Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites, let them live among them, put them to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the Canaanites. Naphtali did not drive out the Canaanites. Dan was forced to live in the hill country by the Amorites. It doesn't seem to be the plan that I read. That you're going to trust me, you're going to go into this land, and then you're going to have to run to the hills for safety. What? Okay, so, so politically they failed. And then chapter 2, it introduces this cycle. This cycle, we did Judges a while ago. I remember my question to you, what, what kind of cycle is that? Is that a sin cycle or is that a redemptive cycle? If you Google it, 9 out of 10, it's always the sin cycle, sin cycle, sin cycle. And I'm an optimist at heart, and I would like to challenge that and go, well, but God always answers, and it's a redemption cycle. But I can't get away from the fact that they don't really care about what God has done or said. They just want to do their own thing. So I, I kind of do see it as a cycle of sin, but I also want to raise the possibility of viewing it as a cycle of redemption. So anyway, that is... Step number one, they sinned, they served other gods, they didn't obey the Lord, they served, uh, I'm going to be using the term Baal, B-A-A-L, it's the, the local God in Canaan, the God of fertility, the God of rain, thunder, storm, because rain, thunder, and storm produces crops that gives them life and gives them money, okay? So Baal is the God of fertility. They serve Baal, they forsake the God of the fathers, and they follow other gods, this is all in chapter 2. Then there's servitude. They, they would fall into submission to these four nations that they're supposed to wipe out. See, that's what sin does. When we compromise, we're supposed to be victorious over sin. Did you know that? That it's normal for Christians to be victorious over sin. That, that's an experience that's not reserved for like 0.2% of Christians, okay? And, and, but when we compromise, we fall in submission to that sin. Um, God allow that to happen as a discipline thing. And then they cry out, we're, we're distressed. You know, we're, we're not really sorry. We, we, we're tired of being, and then God would deliver up a judge to deliver them from their oppressor. Um, and then they would be satisfied. They would forget about that, go back to doing their own thing and sin some more. And so that's the first two chapters, okay? Now, so that's the first two chapters, political nightmare, spiritual nightmare. And now most of the stories you've heard about are in the middle of the book, chapters 3 to 16. You know, Gideon, Barak, Deborah, Ehud, all these guys, that's all here. And that cycle that we just saw, uh, the, all those steps, that happens seven times. Seven times in the book. It goes over and over and over and over. And so the author is like, he's doing something on purpose. Probably Samuel, the author, but anyway. Now, this is another thing you got to know about the book of Judges. This is fascinating. The material historically that happens between chapter 2 and 3, he takes a bunch of stuff from that time period, and he puts it at the end of the book. Because these stories are horrific stories of rape, murder, slaughter by Israelites against Israelites. Now, he wants this whole story to go from a general introduction of a nightmare through specific judges, which goes from good to horrible. And at the end, he's got this double appendix where these horrible stories of it's just like, what? And so his final point is we need a king. And here's the deal. If you read the book of Judges, you get to the end of it and you don't understand we need a king, do it again. Because that's pretty clear. That's the point. Like, we are just so confused. We don't know which way is up. In fact... The, the verse happens, whoops, 
four times here at 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, 21, 25, the same verse, all at this last end. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's just shouting for the need for a king. Okay, so that's kind of the structure. That's where the book is going. Now, I want to go through the book, uh, tell you some stories very quickly. Notice Gideon is in the middle. This is called a chiastic structure, and um, it's because it's indented, and typically the middle part of any Hebrew chiastic structure is where your attention is, and there's, there's a pivot. So Othniel, he's a good guy, and he wants a good man for his daughter. So he says this, hey, whoever can go across the hill and attack Kiriath Sefer and kill everybody, you get to marry my daughter. Now we're looking at that going, well, that is interesting. I'm, you know, the Bible is instructive. I'm supposed to, you know, do what the Bible says and I've got a daughter. So no. What is going on with this? Well, think about this. If, if some guy goes across the hill and is victorious over this Canaanite town, if he's victorious, what does that mean? There's obedience. He is saying, I want someone who is faithful to God's covenant, and I'm going to test him by throwing him over the hill, and if he can conquer an entire city, I know he walks with God. He understands how to trust God. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so he does that, and that's awesome. Then we have Ehud, kind of gory. I'll just say, if, if you have a favorite knife, don't let Ehud use it. He loses it. Anyway. Deborah, Barak, um, he refuses to act like a man, and, and thank goodness she was a strong leader. She steps into that void, and that's great that she's a strong leader, but there's also the loud silence of the male leadership. As the book of Judges goes on, men are just completely disintegrating, and women are left alone to fend for themselves, and the treatment of women in Judges is just sad. It goes, it goes from Othniel, who, who values his daughter to obtain a godly man for her, to Jephthah killing his daughter so he can be a big deal. I mean, this is this downward slide that's going to shout the need. We, need. we need a king. So, and then you've got Gideon, and we'll talk about him. I'm going to come back and, and spend more time on him. Abimelech is not really a judge. He was just a tyrant, all right? And uh, we'll uh, go on to Jephthah. He's the guy that, seriously, um, they said, hey, you're a big deal. You have some fighting guys, and we're in trouble and oppressed. And if you come and fight for us, we'll make you our, our leader. And he's like, really, for real? And so then he makes a vow I will sacrifice whatever, and the, the, the Hebrew, it's, it's male. He's expecting his household servant to come out. He's going to, you know, the guy that gets the, the newspaper and the milk and cheese or whatever, he'll, I'll kill him if that will buy me the, the, the power. And then his daughter walks out, and, and um, he, he kills her. Anyway, then Samson, who's just a nightmare morally. But the weird thing about Samson is um, a foreign woman, Delilah, is ruling over the Israelite spirit-empowered deliverer because he, he didn't meet the spirit of God with cooperation and faithfulness. He's just doing his own thing. Samson's a really, really interesting, sad story. Uh, and then you get to the double appendix down here. Uh, women are uh, kidnapped, um, abused, and slaughtered by their own country, by Israelites. So you get to this book, and it's like, what a time of anarchy. I mean, how civilized is Israel when, when this is how they treat women? And, and, and the men are just nowhere. One of the classic pictures of the, the passiveness of men is in the Abimelech story when it says all the men and leaders of the city were in this tower because the enemy, Abimelech, is trying to kill them. 
And, and it's like they don't know what to do. And so a certain woman, some nameless woman on purpose, you get the sense that like any woman could see what to do here. She grabs an upper millstone and just shoves it over and kills Abimelech. While all the leaders and the men of the town, well, they were there. Like, what are you guys doing? They, they've lost the ability to know right from wrong and to take action based on God's word and the covenant. They just, she saw it. And one of my favorite bunny trail here, one of my favorite things is later on, I think in Chronicles, you know, blah, 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 Abimelech, the, the guy who was killed by a woman. Now, that's funny because when he got hit on this, he wasn't completely dead. He was only mostly dead. And he said to his servant, kill me so that it won't be said of me that a woman killed him. That's what it says. And the writer of Chronicles, hundreds of years later, is like, blah, 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 blah. Oh, Abimelech, he killed my woman. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know if they're, if they're laughing at that or not. Anyway, so we're going to go back here to judge it, to uh, Gideon, okay? Go back to Gideon. Now... Gideon is, the whole book of Judges focuses about, around Gideon. If you double-click on the Gideon narrative, the whole Gideon narrative is all centered around the battle, okay? So he's got this battle. The Midianites are oppressing them. There's 135,000 Midianites. Remember that number, okay? So he is afraid and intimidated, and so he... He does some things. He does them at night. He pulls down his father's altar to Baal. So he grows up in a home worshiping Baal. God's calling him. And he calls him as he's threshing wheat in a cave, which you do, normally do that out in the open. So he's, his whole life is marked by fear. He's afraid that the Midianites would find him. The angel shows up and says, oh, valiant warrior. And I'm thinking, Gideon's like, what, who's here? And I know you. Well, I'm not big. I'm not this. He's just like Moses, all these excuses. So like father, like son, he, um, fear dominates him. So he sets out a fleece. He's like, well, wet and dry and dry and wet. And, 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 and God told him, listen to this carefully, the fleece is not to determine God's will. God told him crystal clear, go defeat the Midianites. So he knows what to do. The fleece is to gain assurance that it would really work out. If he believed God, we, we don't get that kind of assurance. But God, in his kind, he's like, okay, wet, dry, dry, wet, whatever. The sacrifice burned up. And then right after that, what does he do? He reduces his, his army. Okay, so Gideon is all about the battle. If you double-click on this middle one here, you're going to get into uh, the battle narrative. So um, the, ar the, the, the army is reduced. He has 22,000. Remember, they have 135,000. He has 22,000 people. Now, look at the irony of this. The first thing he does is he says to his troops from Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20 is a chapter on how to do war. And it says in there, if any soldier is afraid, let him go home so his fear doesn't infect everybody else. So Gideon stands up and says, hey, troops, if anyone's afraid, y'all need to go home. And, and don't you think the troops are like, <laughs> dude, does that mean you're going to go too? I mean, you can tell when someone's afraid, right? It's like your whole life is marked by, anyway, so he does that. So 10,000 people or 12,000 leave, and now he's got 10,000 people. And, and God says, that's too many for me to deliver because you will think you did it. So go down to the brook, and he, he thins them down to 300 now watch what happens. Gideon is like, I'm not really sure you're faithful and you're going to do what you said, so give me a sign. 
dry, wet, dry, wet, fleece, whatever. So he gets that sign. Yes, it's going to work. And then right away, God takes his army down to 300. That means each soldier in Gideon's army was responsible to kill 450 of the enemy. I mean, if you time travel with a whole AR-15 and Blackhawks, that's still hard. Sorry for that image. I'm just saying it's impossible. It's just impossible for these guys to do this, which means they need faith, okay? They need faith. And so this is the heart of the Gideon. Remember, all of Gideon goes around to the battle. The battle goes around this faith narrative. And in 715, we've got to read 715. It's amazing what he does here. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. What dream? Gideon was so afraid. And this is amazing. Um, God says to him, after all this stuff, in 710, he says, if you are afraid... Go down to the enemy camp with this guy named Pura. So he goes down to the camp at night, goes next to this tent, and he hears a Midianite soldier in his tent freaking out about how afraid he is of God. And this is what he says. The, the Midianite uh, guy said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent. It struck it and killed everybody. And, and the, his comrade said, Well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon. The son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given us into to their, their camp. And then Gideon believed and worshipped. Now, it's easy to criticize him and go, what God tells you. He's the only judge in the whole book of Judges that God talks to. And he doesn't believe God. He believes some random guy talking about his dream. So it's easy to criticize that. But yet God looks at this and goes, if that's what it takes, listen to it. If you're still afraid, grab your buddy, go down, and just listen to what. Isn't that amazing? I just, I, it's so easy to get so hypercritical about not good enough. Rahab shouldn't have lied. He should have, yeah, okay. And what about us? I'm so glad that God meets our failure and our fear with, with kindness and encouragement. All right? So that, to me, is the heart of the whole book of Judges right there. He responds in the middle of his fear with worship because he believes. And after this, it's a completely different guy. He leads his army with faith. He, God's fulfillment of the, with the small army. So you how this works here. Um, one more slide. So fearful Gideon, there's a threat. Now down here, worshiping Gideon, there's victory. God's promise of, of victory with a small army. God's fulfillment of victory with a small army. And fear and fear bracketed by his response and worship. So that right there is your takeaway today, right? Fear is normal. It's okay to be afraid. Just don't let it drive your life. Submit to God, let it bring you before his throne and, and walk with him and watch what fear does. Um, it's meant, we're meant to be a journey from fear to faith. Don't let it be a, a jail for you, okay? So that is um, a, a pretty cool, as you look at, the, again, the book of Judges, um, the whole book of Judges centers around Gideon. It's the longest episode, and also he's the pivotal judge. Every judge before Gideon delivers Israel from the bad guys. Beginning with, judge, with Gideon, the judge becomes the bad guy. Gideon is the first one to introduce idolatry. He's the first one to kill Israelites, and it just gets worse and worse and worse after him. Okay? So he is the pivot point. Now, God told Israel, go fight win. God told Gideon, go fight win. And Gideon's problem is Israel's problem. Gideon is like, well, I don't know. I'm, he's struggling in faith and confidence, and they're big. And, they're, and, and Israel had the same problem. The solution is the same thing. 
Trust God, lean on him, and he will go before you like he did at Jericho, all right? So even though Gideon, here's an evaluation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna really make you uncomfortable with the qualifications of faith. He cynically expressed disappointment with God's presence. If the Lord is with us, how come bad things are happening? He's reluctant to accept God's call. He's like, well, how should I do this? I'm least. He needs a couple confirming signs. He fears the men of its village, so he pulls down the altar at night. He kills Israelites, and then later on, he makes an idolatrous ephod and leads Israel into idolatry. So would you put him in Hebrews 11? Yeah, right? Isn't that interesting? I'm like, yeah, I don't think I would. There's something about faith. We, we tend to have this, this scale. Good deeds and, and faith have to outweigh, and I don't know if that's how God works. Remember, in every saint, there's something to be found that's reprehensible. Although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. So Gideon's sin doesn't invalidate his faith. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't elevate it. It just doesn't invalidate it. And that makes us uncomfortable because we're like, well, if you're following Jesus, you should, you should, you should. I just read yesterday, a um, couple seconds, in World Magazine, uh, Bono, you too? Big deal, 2002, a Super Bowl thing. Anyway, he's a believer, but just doesn't play the believing role like all the other CCM Christian musicians, right? You know, the, among Christian musicians, there's this, this Jesus per minute count joke about, you know, he doesn't do that. So Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, is picking him up from the airport, and, and Franklin Graham is a little nervous about this, this guy, Bono. He's like, so you, you're, uh, you're like a born-again believer? Yep. So you've trusted G Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Yep, I've, I trust him. I just try not to use him only as my Savior. <laughs> he says, no laughter. Okay, so uh, you, you sing songs. Uh, are they, uh, how come they're not Christian songs? And he's like, well, look around you, the, the, the trees, the hills, I mean, nature, everything shouts the glory of God, but there's no sign, praise Jesus because of this tree. Anyway, so Bono is the kind of guy that, that is walking with Christ in, in a different way, but he's responding in his circles, at least where I can read, to the Spirit of God, but it looks different. So, so I want to be kind of slow to be like, but you deserve, you know what I mean? And because um, I, I don't, I'm not in his circles Anyway, that just popped into my head. So um, here we go. The journey from fear to faith, it takes time. It includes failure and it includes forgiveness. So I really want to encourage us when you meet somebody who's at a different place of that arc of redemption, just to, to give them space. They're growing in grace. No one's finished that with that. We're all growing in grace. And you're going to be uncomfortable because maybe they do some music that you don't like and approve or, or whatever it is. No, certainly there are moral things that sometimes you just have to square up and go, this is just, we just can't do this. Okay, fair. That's, 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 everything's not just what you want. But there's a lot of areas where we get all, and, and we don't need to. Okay. So here's our questions. Oh, anyway, so what I'm saying is, yeah, the who we are as a church, we're making disciples and these rhythms of grace, knowing God and his word, extending grace and forgiveness, growing and serving, these are rhythms of grace as we respond to the goodness of God. That's, that's, that's a beautiful picture of, of us doing that. So, questions. I'll wrap it up. How is your journey from fear to faith going? 
there's going to be fear at some point. We're all afraid of something. What do you do with that fear? What do you let that do to your heart? Do you know God well enough to trust him with your fear? Joshua, Judges, meditate on it day and night so that you may see the power of God in your life. What role does God's word play in alleviating your fears? If you're trying to figure that out just with um, anything else, it's going to fall flat. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for, I guess I just want to say thank you for fear because it's a tool to wake us up and go, what really am I trusting in? Where do I get my identity? Where do I get my value? We fluctuate, Lord, with our fear. We, we, we know we're okay with you, and then sometimes we wonder if we're okay with you. Your grace is so powerful, so free. You respond in goodness to Adam and Eve. You make coverings for them. And Abraham, you meet him with the promise. Moses with your presence. And Joshua with meditating on your word. And in, in the midst of all their shortcomings and fear and failure, your kindness is right there leading them to the next step wherever they are. May we be just so kind to those around us that are at a different place than we are. And may we find you and your word as a comfort for our fear. Amen.